Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by guest Brian Strauser. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So I, I, I'm super excited for the conversation we're about to have. Uh, it is predicated by you sharing a big, big 2023, a series of wins for 2023 in the Ditcherville Wins Channel. But first, could you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So Brian Strauser, I'm CEO of a small consulting firm uh, based in Minnesota called Bright Path. And we work with the world's leading brands to strategically manage uncertainty and disruption. Hmm. That's wild. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what the business model of Bright Path looks like, what sorts mm -hmm. of products and services you offer. Sure. So we work primarily with large, complex organizations. I think our smallest client is uh, several hundred million dollars in sales, all the way up to name brands you would recognize in the Fortune 25. Um, and what we help with is really understanding the risk landscape that they're faced with. And then we help them build plans from uh, crisis management continuity of operations and crisis communication standpoint to help them withstand the kind of disruptions they expect to face, whether that's natural disasters or more recently cybersecurity and cyber extortion ransomware kind of events to violent crimes and some of those other things that uh, unfortunately impact businesses and employees. Mm, excellent. Oh, so many questions, but but <laughs> I, I feel like I don't want to I don't want to drag the conversation in that direction because it might just automatically reveal itself. Uh, sure. Through the the primary purpose here, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, your your. Well, I can just the quote here. If it's okay, if I share the quote. Yeah, go for it. Uh, um, uh, so ending up forty two percent over last year, broke seven figures for the first time, closed killer deal today. This is the end of December, mm -hmm. uh, with the largest invoice ever. Expanding team in twenty twenty four. A lot due to strategies and tactics. Of, oh, and then and then a nice some kind words about. Uh, things you've learned in Ditcherville. Mm -hmm. So this is great. And it was, you know, it's in contrast to not everyone having uh, a year that's 42% over last. So what sorts of things could you share with us, you know, in particular, the dear listener that might help contribute to them having that kind of a year this year in 2024? Like were there key things, you know, you mentioned pricing, positioning proposals and other things yep. that we talk about. What sorts of things were real game changers for you? Or was it just a combination of things that created a flywheel effect? Well, I, I think it was a combination of things. But if I if I take these in a little bit of order, um, I think it started with positioning. Um, I come from a pretty diverse background in corporate security. I just happened to specialize in crisis management in the end of my corporate career. I've been on my own for a decade. But before that, I was with uh, a Fortune 30 retailer for 21 years. Mm -hmm. And when I first started the company, it was just me. And I you know, thought, well, I, here's all these things I have done. I can do all of these things, which was true, but it didn't help me build or market any particular expertise because I wasn't positioned deeply into something. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think one of the first things I learned from folks like you and uh, David C. Baker and Blair Ends and others that have been influences on how I think was to really narrow the positioning to what do I really enjoy and what do I, th where I think 
thinking differently and taking a, a, a different approach to the business would differentiate us. And that had me narrowed towards where I was at the end of my career, in my end of my corporate career, where I was the head of crisis management and business continuity and crisis communications. Mm. So we've just gone deeply into, we think of that um, bucket of resiliency, of really being the place where we want to go deep into that. And then as I built the team, I've just built folks that that's what they want to do. They don't want to do all this other corporate BS. They want to focus in these areas. Yep. So I think starting there, niching down, I think is how you would put it and getting the right positioning and stake or in, in place really helped us start down this path a few years back. Mm. So let's drill into this before we move on to other useful tactics. How long did you feel like you were operating as a solo generalist? Um, I think it was the first, let's see, I started the company in 2014. So by 2017, we'd hired the first employee. So it took us about three years, took me about three years to figure out the the positioning struggle. Okay. What did that process look like, if you can remember? Yeah. I just didn't feel like I was picking up on the business the way that I didn't, I wasn't picking up new business the way that I expected that I would. Mm-hmm. So I found that, you know, sales and marketing process to be harder than I expected it to be. And that was kind of my first indication. Maybe something's not right in how I'm thinking about this. What were you doing for sales and marketing back then that was not working? I really just had a website and expected that folks would find it. Okay. Right. I wasn't doing any, I wasn't really doing any marketing. I wasn't doing content development. I didn't have anything approaching a lead magnet. I didn't have a productized service. I didn't have any of that figured out. It was just kind of a jumbled generalist mess Mm, prior to that. And I'm going to guess your clients came by referral. Oh, my clients totally came from my old network of folks. You're exactly right. Yeah. That's how it works. Okay. So then it was uh, roughly a three-year process. So you, you you went solo, you did that, you probably got some referrals and you you were doing some work. And then at some point in that first three-year period, you you recognized that something was wrong. How, how quickly did you discover that? Did you think like, geez, I'm not like, maybe I've got work, but I'm not getting a lot of leads. Was that right away? Was it six months? Was it a year? It, it took a while in, in 2017. So I would say it took the bulk of that year. We had a really, I had a really large contract at the time um, where I was serving in an interim uh, C-suite journalist position for a university, a privately held university mm. that um, where I was doing a broad variety of security things, but it's not what I wanted to do. I wanted mm. to get back into kind of the crisis management realm. And it was a lot of the time sitting there thinking about it during the course of doing that work to figure out how do I start to narrow this positioning down and then build the marketing material to help that be successful. Okay. So, so once you decided to narrow down the positioning, how long do you think it took before you landed on something that seemed to get traction? I, it took the bulk of a year to get to an earlier version of how we think about positioning today. We've tweaked this a little bit in the last couple of years, but mm-hmm. it, it took a good a year to figure out that this is what we should focus on and how to go about doing that. Okay. And what, do you remember what the process was like? So many people to get wrapped around the axle on this one. So like they're generalist and they're like, well, I could specialize in 10 things or <laughs> what does specialization even mean? Is it about what I do or is it about who I help or what I help them with? Or so could you kind of share with us a little bit, like how certain were you? Uh, and, and as you, you said, you tweaked it a little bit. It sounds like you might've came pretty close with your first attempt, but um, can you think of any specific things you did, like reach out to your network and kind of bounce the idea off of them or change your LinkedIn yeah. profile and like, whoa, yep. I'm attracting more followers or something. 
There was definitely, um, it, there certainly weren't any metrics around it like that. Unfortunately, I didn't think of it at the time, but it, there was definitely conversation within my network. Um, there were some folks that had left our employer, our previous employer around the same time as I did that had started their own businesses. And the ones that were really successful had all started to niche into one particular space. Mm. Um, and I think that really gave me some inspiration through conversation from their experiences of what had been working for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that got me thinking about really kind of around two ideas. One was, what did I really enjoy about the work that I had done in previous years? And it all kept going back to, I enjoy the preparedness and the management of disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, so that whole it was that whole idea of this is the kind of work I like to do. So I want to focus there. The second one was just how do I think about this that's different than how others in this space think about it. Mm-hmm. And it it led me to this concept of resiliency, the way I think about resilience, um, and the folks that I've hired think about resilience, and the roles that crisis management, business continuity, crisis communications play as kind of moons orbiting that sun of resilience, so to speak. Yeah. All right. That's very interesting. It's, uh, are you sort of in the anti-fragile camp, just out of curiosity? Or is that, is that kind of what you mean where it's like the idea isn't to never have an outage, it's to be, to be like very bounce back very quickly? It's more, it's definitely in more of the, how do you bounce back quickly? Because those things are going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, like if we, if we go to the technology world and I know where you started, um, it's this whole idea of chaos engineering, right? How do we build things and then test them in a way that we know they're not going to break because we've pushed them in this way, mm-hmm. uh, in this very chaotic approach. Cool. What were your thoughts around specializing on a particular you know, fortune 25 retailers or something, you know, did you have any, anything on that knob that you were focusing on? Or was it just a sort of side effect that your network and your history had been with these sort of big kinds of hundred million dollar companies? I think, um, we did think about how do we, I did think through like, how could we niche even further? And I think actually that was some of your feedback to me in the, in the pricing seminar uh, several years ago was, can you go even uh, more narrow in your niche? And I, I kind of shied away from that because the the world of companies that can afford this kind of service is not that large, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly at the scale at which I saw us being able to operate. Um, so we didn't, it, that didn't, I, I've never gone towards kind of niching down even further than that. Now, ironically, we've developed some industry specialization along the way. I came from retail. Ironically, I don't have much retail. We don't have a lot of retail clientele, but we've developed a lot of clients in the energy sector and the healthcare sectors mm-hmm. um, because of referral once we've got into a large client who has then started talking with their peers. But mm-hmm. that was not intentional, but we certainly learned things in those two sectors that we didn't know before. Right. So one one comment I'll make, and I hope I'm not contradicting myself from back then, <laughs> but if you're if you are super premium or even premium, that's automatically going to have a discriminating effect. Right. It's it's not an industry specialization, but if you're automatically pricing yourself in a way where the thing that you deal with is only valuable to a company of a certain size, then that is that is still. Is mm-hmm. specialization on a particular it's niche air quotes niching down on uh, enterprises so one of the these kinds of enterprises so one of the things that 
I'd love to touch on here that is related is once you started to become clear about your positioning and presumably started messaging about it, mm -hmm. where were your leads coming from? Were they like inbound leads? Did it continue to be a lot of referrals or did you notice an uptick in other types of inbound or did you do outbound and, and sort of start conversations that way? I've never really ever done outbound. Um, the inbound definitely, the, the calculus has shifted over time. Um, it was referral from initially the network of alumni from the company I had worked at to now being referral from, uh, to referral from existing clients. Whereas now we get noticed, I would say mostly in the last two to three years, we've picked up more on inbound leads from folks we've never had contact with before. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think our, I think a combination of our positioning and our ongoing content between podcasts and articles, uh, and, you know, lead magnets, I think has helped drive up that inbound lead category over time. Great. Yeah. And for a premium buyer, someone who's expecting to spend a lot of money mm -hmm. inbound is, I mean, inbound is great. If you can plant those seeds that when the, when the tomatoes start coming up, it's just fantastic. Uh, it can be difficult for people to get to the point where they've, you know, tended the garden and, and done everything every day and watered it and all that and, mm -hmm. and had something to eat in the meantime. <laughs> so, uh, I, cause I know I'm, there are probably a lot of people salivating at the size of clients that you're getting as a relatively small consulting firm. So I, I would point out to those people, I think that your particular specialization, it sounds like just on the face of it, it's just incredibly high value to a particular kind of buyer who is is familiar with trying. To, what is how do you say this? Like risk is part of their daily life, managing risk, taking risks, and there's a lot of money on the line, presumably. So that that automatically creates a lot of value for what you do. So mm -hmm. if you were if you were someone like you brought their positioning statement, you know, uh, oh, we do crisis management for. Um, independently owned co-working spaces, single location co-working spaces, it'd be like, well, <laughs> yeah. And even that, you know, like solo, solo consultants, like if you, if you did risk management for someone like me, I'd be like, uh, you know, you could be amazing at what you do, but it's just, the value is just not there. So it makes sense that you'd go way up market to people that were, that were lots of dollars were on the line, careers mm -hmm. probably on the line. Um, let me ask you this. What are the alternatives to hiring someone like you? So if, if so you're talking to someone and they're like, ah, oh, you know, we're in the, we've got this, we're going to expand into South America and we're nervous about the politics in some country and uh, something like that, then like who else would they be talking to? Or, or in your experience, are they just, they're not mm -hmm. talking to anyone else because they trust you specifically? There are um, there are definitely some competitors. There's a couple firms that are um, a little bit larger than us that we often compete against. And sometimes we win the business, sometimes they win the business. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a huge gap. And then there's Deloitte, Pricewaterhouse, yeah. Ernst & Young, Marsh, McKinsey. Uh, and we usually are competing against them as well. Um, mm -hmm. The other... It's more common that companies will either, they'll either go to a consulting firm they've used before. So like they've been with Ernst & Young for years, so they're going to go to ENY. Yeah. Um, or they, you know, if they're open to it, they're talking with our firm and some of our competitors. 
or they're just going to do it internally, um, which I think never ends well uh, because they just don't. They're usually coming to us because they don't have the expertise or they don't have the headcount, the the resources to be able to do the work. Um, And it just doesn't work out well for them. Uh, And they usually come back. (laughs) <laughs> some okay. future point looking like can you fix the thing that we broke you know trying to do it ourselves oh, yeah never been there so <laughs> how how would you if you're in a situation where you knew that the client was talking to McKinsey let's say mm-hmm. would you lose interest in the conversation or would you be able to compare you know like in a compelling way if they said well you know we're talking to McKinsey too but Mm-hmm. what what would be the pros and cons of working with you versus them like do you have a yeah. a sort of pat answer for that like what does that sound like yeah i mean i think it's a it's a two part answer i think one is is this a you know a blind rfp process where i've got to put 40 hours in to get in the front door mm. whereas i don't have the you know for me i would do that if i had a really good chance of winning the work i wouldn't do it uh, if this was, you know, some random call out of the blue about taking on an RFP, mm-hmm. um, because McKinsey has a team of hundreds or more that can, you know, churns those things out every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're in head to head and I'm not having to go through this blind RFP process, I think the difference is our flexibility and ability to pivot, um, and focus in a way that a large organization just can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're going to get a, a bespoke, uh, solution that fits the problem that you're faced with. Whereas with McKinsey and, and my wife came out of large consulting it at a, at one of McKinsey's competitors, mm-hmm. you know, they're pulling it out of a file cabinet and then modifying it to fit the orc. And it's, it's not the same approach. <laughs> it's such a right? great visual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's used that several times in sales conversations here. <laughs> That's powerful. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So a particular kind of buyer is just going to recoil at that. The, the way I laughed at it, they're going to recoil right. at it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're going to pull it out of a file cabinet. They're going to modify it. They're going to give it to you and you're going to put it in a file cabinet. Yep. You're never going to look at it again. Right. That's awesome. So once, once you got your positioning down, what were the, you, you've alluded a couple of times to content marketing. So what were some of the things that you do or did that started to move the needle in terms of inbound? There's two things that we did from a content standpoint that we've continued to focus on. One was we started a podcast. Um, and I think our our challenge, my initial challenge with that was how do I get to just consistency in the podcast by making it as easy as possible? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was listening. I never did your podcast course, but I think I was listening to an episode of the Business of Authority where you and Rochelle were talking once about with the podcast where there's no intro, there's no outro, you just start it and do it. And when you're done and there's minimal, if any editing and you're yeah. and you publish it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, why am I not doing that? <laughs> so I got rid of the intro and the outro and all the editing. And I, it has been so much easier just, yeah. uh, unless I screw up the first minute or two of a podcast episode, then I'll start over. But otherwise I just go with it. Right. Um, and that has that has alleviated so much stress and friction in the process for me to just do it. Yeah, it turns into more of a live. It feels like you're live streaming. You might as well be live streaming right. it. Yeah. And it for me, it just has a, a massively different energy to it. I just it's so difficult to just talk into a mic by yourself. Monologuing is not a normal thing. Right. Uh, but in most people listening, just a quick little pitch for podcasting. Most people listening are perfectly comfortable running a Zoom call with a client. They, yeah. They're not worried about starting over. 
like they're going to keep going they're even if they screw up they're going to figure out a way to keep going they're not going to like forget what to say or just stop dead you know so yep. if you just think of it like a conversation and proceed that way then yeah it can be extremely and you'll get better at it you'll figure mm -hmm. out how to like how to how to screw up in a way that doesn't look like a screw up and i've got a, a background in live music performance so that's like a mm -hmm. total musician skill it's like oh, i meant to play that yeah. note <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> so you get better at it anyway a, a podcasting it for especially for someone who like you who's competing potentially against uh, a giant gorilla like uh, you know 400 pound gorilla like mckinsey and needs to be perceived as less risky than them mm -hmm. in some way somehow somehow you are the safer option like how are you going to do that well one way is to show up every week in their ears and become that familiar voice and it's just amazing how it creates this you know asymmetric intimacy with the listeners it's mm -hmm. it, it can be it takes a long time uh, and you need to be good at it but you know if you've got a long time and you can practice it and just keep showing up and doing it you'll get better and better and better and then it, have you i mean have you found that it helps in uh, like a sales meeting, for example, where people are like, oh, we've been listening to the show. It has, I mean, it's, uh, I think the first time we hear, we're 229 episodes in as of today. Um, I think the first time we heard that from a prospective client was about a year and a half ago. And they're like, they approached us about doing a particular piece of work and they're like, well, we've listened to all of your podcast episodes on this topic. That's why mm -hmm. we're calling you. Mm -hmm. And they didn't call anybody else. <laughs> and I thought that was, that was just the best demonstration of authority and, and uh, it, I think, helped us justify, you know, our investment in doing this week after week after week. Hmm. So that would have been like a hundred and something episodes in when that happened. Yeah. yeah so like two years. Yeah. Yeah. Two years ago. Yeah. It's an investment. Um, okay, cool. So uh, you mentioned a lead magnet at one point, I think. Yeah, we've done a few different lead magnets over time. Um, so from our standpoint, there's, uh, you know, we've got very, we have like a resource library on our website and we give away, you know, some of our frameworks of how we think about like, what's a crisis management strategy look like? What does a business continuity life cycle look like? Um, but we also have, you know, kind of a lead magnet we focus on for long periods of time. So if you go to our website, it's on our front page right now, it's, uh, the 250 ways to fortify your business against disruption. So it's mm. like a, you know, 15 to 20 page uh, report of 250 or so tactics in organized into some themes that you can look at as a business leader to help fortify, you know, the resilience of your organization. Mm. So tight. That is really, really good. I love it. I'd like to think that came out of TPS. <laughs> <laughs> it probably did. <laughs> that is really like for the target market. Like, so for, for certain people, that's mumbo jumbo. Right. But for 100%. the target market, that's catnip. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's great. What is, what happens next after the lead magnet? Do you have a, a mailing list that you are? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So we do uh so it, we use drip for uh, our marketing automation and, and newsletter. Mm -hmm. And so any of our lead magnet interactions feed people into an onboarding sequence. Um, there's no pitching really. It's just, you know, more and more free expertise. Here's our best articles. Here's our best podcast episodes, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. We do a little bit of segmentation into where we think they are on their resilience journey. So we can pitch them a little more directly resources that are applicable to them mm -hmm. uh, and where they're at uh, and then they go into our normal newsletter and we do a weekly 
newsletter uh, for the organization. So we're highlighting the content we've published that week, the latest podcast episode, some mm-hmm. soft product pitching in yep. that. Okay. So uh, in terms of investment of time and money, how significant would you say your content marketing efforts are? I, we've done a lot around that, to be honest. we um, Everyone on our team writes at least an article every month, and I write more mm-hmm. frequently than that. And how big's the team? Sorry. Uh, it's okay. I have uh, eight folks currently. Okay. So eight articles a month. Probably more like 10 articles total every month, a podcast every week. Uh, and then we do, we've started to do more video over the last five to six months. So mm-hmm. we record the podcast, both audio and video. We put the video on YouTube mm-hmm. um, every week. And then we also, I also do a longer form video every Thursday on uh, like a weekly insight of some type. And mm-hmm. by longer form, I mean three to four or five minutes, maybe yep. max. And is that like live streamed or you do that into a camera and upload it or what's the it's, story? Yeah, about? I'm recording it a few weeks out uh, and then it's it's getting published on Thursdays. And then um, one of my employees just does video editing and, and content strategy. And so he's gone back and has chopped up, it is still in the process of chopping up our podcast archive into shorts Mm-hmm. That he's then animating and putting on, you know, YouTube and Instagram and okay, and serious, a serious investment. Okay, yeah, okay. Bringing it back to positioning for a second, like if you could imagine, what would it be like if you didn't have this really clear focus? I don't think it would have been effective. I I think that we were or that I when it was just me. I, I think it was a muddled mess. Like, what did we do? Mm-hmm. Um, because it was all over the place. Um, I think narrowing our positioning to what has been working for us and continuing to tweak that as we feel the need to, I, I think is part of what has made us successful. Um, it's allowed us to deeply, I mean, we can deeply point at the authority and expertise and credibility we have in this space. I don't know that I could do that on a really broad scale like I was trying to before. Right. All right. So have you ever felt, I swear we'll stop talking about positioning in a second, because this is only the first thing (laughs) in the list, but have you ever felt constrained by it? That seems, that's a fear of many people that they'll feel like bored, only doing the one thing that they've chosen to specialize in, or that they missed out on opportunities because people like, oh, you specialize in A, but we're B. The only I think I felt less and less of that over time. Definitely early on when, you know, I was trying to build the business more and I wasn't having as much inbound as I do today, mm-hmm. things would come to us and I would be like, yeah, but that's not really what we do. Mm-hmm. Like, could we do the work? Do I have the expertise? And does some of my team have that expertise? Yes. Should we do that? No, it doesn't really line up with where we're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't, f- today I don't feel like that. Three, four years ago, I I may have wondered if I was doing the right thing a little more than I do today. Mm. And at the time, I got to guess, like most people, the the difficulty of that decision would be directly proportional to your cash flow Exactly. That's exactly what it was. (laughs) I know deep down, I don't want to take this client, but I also know that payroll is due in three days. Exactly. Yeah, it's no fun. All right, we'll forget it. We'll stop positioning. We could probably talk the whole time about positioning and the marketing that comes out of it, the content marketing and the benefits and, and the myths. But you said that there were a few things. So positioning was the first one, a few things that contributed to your, your big success in 2024, this big leap forward. Um, what, what would be the next thing on your list? Do you think? 
I think learning over time, if we get past positioning, I think learning over time, the combination of how to propose and how to sell effectively, mm-hmm. how to manage those sales conversations. And then how do I write a proposal that brings the kind of income that our expertise demands mm, okay. uh, and that we should be able to charge for? So this sounds like a combination of uh, proposals, pricing, value-based pricing, probably. And, exactly. Yeah. So let's, let's, what's been your experience in your journey there? So like, like uh, how crazy was that at first or what was the pricing or the proposing like at first? And then it kind of walk people through like, oh, you know, this was weird. I had to do this. I didn't understand the value really. And, but now things are way better because, you know, we've flipped our worldview to scope last or something like that. So I think, um, I, I think the interesting thing for, for anybody coming into starting your own business and managing your own business is just learning how to sell in an authentic way and be comfortable with that process. I knew how to sell and propose huge capital projects inside of a corporation, at least the corporation I was in. Uh, that's a whole different ballgame than trying to sell to, you know, say Nike, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I had to, I needed to learn how to have that conversation mm-hmm. and how to do that in a way that was authentic to someone like me, who's, you know, I'm more introverted and I don't like the those kind of salesy used car salesman conversations. Yeah. So I yeah. think having it, and I think I still evolve with that, you know, a decade into the business, I keep learning how to do this in an effective way. Mm-hmm. Um, but learning how to ask questions, how to have the why conversation, um, and trying to understand how do I get to the value of what this is worth to them, especially something so intangible. Yes. Like I'm sure people listening are just like, you've got to be kidding me. Risk, <laughs> right? Crisis management. Like that's unmeasurable. That's unquantifiable. It's like, well, uh, probably not. Not until you're a data breach and then you're, <laughs> you're going to quantify that really quick. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You don't want to be Target or J. Crew and their site goes down on Black Friday or whatever right. the situation is. Yep. I almost want you to just kind of like, like editorialize on that right there. So can you share anything? Concrete's not the right word, but something concrete about the kinds of words you would use in a conversation with someone where you're trying to talk them out of hiring you. When I'm trying to talk them out of it, yeah, like like you're in a sales company. Well, that's the, yeah. that's sort of my jokey way to I knew talk about the why conversation. So <laughs> it's like, you know, why would you hire? Why would you even do this? Like, why would you even care about crisis management? Why would you even yeah. think of hiring us? Why would you do this now? Why not wait? I mean, I I, I ask very similar questions to directly that. Um, you know, why is this? And I I always I almost always like to start with like, why is this important to you now? Mm-hmm. Like what, what changed? I mean, what we, changed? we, and yeah. I think a, a good example, we were talking with a, I was talking with a company last week in an initial conversation. And that was the question. That was one of the first questions is why is this important to you now going into 2024? And they're like, well, last year we had a big date, we had a data breach. Mm-hmm. And what we learned from that was we don't really have an effective business continuity program. We don't have good ITDR. We don't have a crisis management strategy at all. And I was like, oh, that's a big problem. Would you get into the impact? Would, would it be too sensitive to start asking them about the impact or would you try and work your way into that in a delicate way? Like how bad was it? Yeah. So we had a, we wound up having to have a two part conversation because most companies won't talk about that till there's an NDA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we did an NDA and then we had a second conversation later in the week and then we could get into some detail mm-hmm. uh, around that. But I, like I, I knew only what was in the public, 
you know, news about this particular incident. Yep. I did, had no idea of the internal things that went on and the things that they saw, but that was all good. It was great fodder to understand where we needed to go one so that I could propose work that would make sense for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, to understand just what is this worth to them? Um, cause I knew from my own experience, having been in a company with a massive data breach, mm-hmm. um, they probably had companies like Mandiant or CrowdStrike or Verizon in there for millions of dollars doing remediation. Right. My consulting fee for a program evaluation was not going to concern them. Yeah, it's not going to be a price problem. Yeah, probably pricing it too low would be bad. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I, I, I feel like I need to do a quick sidebar on the NDA thing. So you, you signed the NDA before they were a client. Correct. And normally, generally speaking, I don't talk about contracts at all. Not a lawyer. Yep. don't like contracts. I think it makes total sense. And I've said probably plenty of times on my email list, like, I probably wouldn't sign an NDA until someone's like a client. And I definitely wouldn't mm-hmm. sign a non-compete. Mm-hmm. In your case, it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. As, you, as you know, but I'm saying for the dear listener, it makes total yeah. sense in Brian's case to be doing this because... It's a signal that they are they are willing to reveal yep. a bunch of very useful pricing information. Yep. Right. They're about to tell you everything you need to know to price the work to to define the work and price the work appropriately for both parties. Mm-hmm. So that's like a no brainer, and especially because you're operating you're operating with based on if you're doing value based pricing, you're probably operating at high margins, mm-hmm. and you're operating with clients who have like you said your prices could be in the seven figures and people would be like, yeah, that makes sense. Right. And so there, it's not a question of like, oh, should we get a lawyer involved? Like, like the dollars just do make sense in this case. A lot of people I talk to, the dollars don't make sense, mm-hmm. uh, but you are definitely an exception to that. Mm-hmm. And All we'll, right. we'll bring in counsel if it's some kind of, uh, you know, really strict or weird NDA, but usually it's not necessary for this mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. So you, so you're, you have the conversation, maybe you have two conversations, maybe there's an NDA. Mm -hmm. What happens next? Well, then we, uh, so typically from there we'll, we'll move to a proposal. Uh, Mm -hmm. so the most common way that we get into a large client is our productized service or close to a productized service, which is how we think of a program evaluation and a roadmap Mm -hmm. to understand what they have or don't have from a re- the standpoint of a resiliency program, and then what we think they need to do. And that almost always then leads us to either doing the work to implement our recommendations, uh, or we're coming in and just running it for them rather than having an internal team do it. So we yeah. build a managed, we build it and then we've ser- we run it as a managed service. Uh, okay, what, what are some more, <laughs> like what is that? And, and like, how long does it last? It can last it's, for years. It sounds novel. Yes. What, yeah. Is this advisory or are you in there? What does this look like? So it, let me, let me take you through a, maybe a more practical example. So okay. one of our, uh, one of our current clients is a healthcare, uh, healthcare insurance organization would be the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. And we came in and did a program evaluation to look at their current capabilities and then outline, here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, which was followed by, okay, can you help us build these things? Yes, we can. Sure. So we then built, you know, kind of the program elements followed by, we don't really like how this is running internally. Would you consider 
contracting with us and we just outsource the entire program to you to run. Okay, pause. So, so yep. how much of a time delay was there between you delivering like, here's the roadmap, here's the plan, and them saying, we can't, we're not going to do this well. We need in, you to help yeah. us. In that case, about six months. Okay, uh, that seemed right. So they needed to learn that they were not going to. Correct. Okay, that's that is exactly what I was wondering. Yeah. So, do, what? So the this kind of the concept of the sort of roadmap, the prescription, mm-hmm. moving into the implementation slash therapy is very common. It's a very common mm-hmm. pattern. We talk about it a lot. The Alex Hillman episode was another good one. That, mm-hmm. I remember that one. <laughs> yeah. And what did he say? He said, I closed 100% of the deals that I wanted after the roadmap. Exactly. So where is your roadmap in, in your funnel? So you've got this lead magnet, you've got this content marketing that comes from it. You've got soft pitches in the email. Mm-hmm. You're building authority in the podcast. Do is the first, is the roadmap phase required in every case or is it a case by case basis? We almost always require the roadmap for a new client. Okay. If you've never been in there before, we want to start with what we call the resiliency diagnosis. I want to do a program evaluation. I can modify the scale a bit depending upon what they want to focus on or the size of the organization, but I want my own diagnosis before I prescribe what the, or do what the solution is. Okay. And is that something that you price individually on a case-by-case basis or is it more of a, a traditional productized service where like there's a, a, a price tag on your website? It, we don't put the price tag on the website, but there's a floor of where we're going to start. And then based on, you know, a scoping conversation, it'll go up from mm-hmm. there. What are the things that affect the scope? Like what sorts of things are scope red flags for you or not red flags, but like this is definitely going to cost more. Um, one is how many people they would want us to talk with within the organization. Like we, we had a client in 2023, uh, a, they're in 150 plus countries, uh, massive organization. And they wanted us to talk with a lot of people around the world. Okay. That drove the price up, mm-hmm. um, because it was going to be significantly more work to pull that off. Um, but they were also, a they were a more mature program. They've been around longer. They had done more. So it all kind of lined up in terms of what we expected going into the conver- the scoping conversation. Whereas, you know, a $4 billion company, 4,000 employees operating in one or two countries, it's going to be close to the floor to do okay. that. <laughs> uh, that. Okay, that's funny. So yeah. it's just funny because the numbers that you're using, I think for a lot of people are just like, oh, salivating. Yeah. So le- let me ask maybe a, a strategic question. So like this, this, this one that, was like in 150 countries and like, wow, this is going to be a lot more work. Like, is that really an ideal client for you? Should you maybe have said no to that? Or are those the kinds of clients you'd rather be getting and you're working toward? I'd rather have that client because there's more work to be had at the end of that uh, evaluation. And there has been, we've done some follow-up work with them since then. Okay. Do you, uh, I don't think we talked about client roster. Like, do you get nervous about whale situations or is this not, not one of those situations? I used to be more concerned about that a few years ago, but as we've diversified um, the number of clients we have, I've become a lot less concerned with that. Okay. So they're not, they're not, they might be making up a decent portion of your revenue, but you're like, ah, we've got more leads. We've got more stuff to fall back on. Okay, great. So pretty much everybody starts with a roadmap. There's a floor price. Can you say if it's five figures or higher? Mid five figures. Mid five. Okay. So, 
So right away you're going to, you're going to, any tire kickers are going to be out of the running. Mm -hmm. Do other, do your competitors, especially the ones that are a similar size, not McKinsey, but is this a common, is this the way that they also engage with clients or do you even know, like, do they just go straight to a project? So I, I don't know if they have a comparable services defined maybe the way that we have to this level of specificity. Most of them say they do program evaluations mm -hmm. on their websites or in their marketing material, whereas we spell out, I mean, we have a landing page for this with detail. Here's how it works. Here's the mm -hmm. deliverables. You know, here's the typical schedule. So it's hard for me to tell uh, how far into that, you know, how, how far are apples for apples uh, that the two are. Right. I, so from a buyer standpoint, I think that stands out. If if I can get a sense of what the engagement is going to roughly involve, you know, maybe not, maybe the price isn't there, but I'm, I'm going to get, I would have guessed what you said, mid five figures, mm -hmm. then, okay, if, if I'm thinking it's probably mid five figures, I'm going to want to feel like I'm in good hands. Like I'm mm -hmm. with someone experienced, I'm going to want to see things on the page that make that I'm nodding along with like, Ooh, that would be a good idea. That would be a good, yeah. So we really should, we should have done that. I should have thought of that. I really want to get these people in versus someone who's like, yeah, we do, you know, they don't have a, maybe they, they know they need to evaluate the situation, but it's kind of, they wing it or it's not super formalized. And they're certainly not, even if it is formalized, the, the process, it's not really exposed on the website in a way that's mm -hmm. compelling. I would completely detect that as a buyer mm -hmm. and be like, yeah, like these people are probably smart. I could probably bring them in. They could probably figure things out on the fly. But Brian's people are like, poof, I, like I can already feel, I feel like I already learned something just from reading the sales page. You know, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm imagining a lot of things, but from the way that you described it, like that feels super compelling. Uh, at what point does the concept of the evaluation come up? Do they come to you knowing that they need to have mm -hmm. the evaluation first? Or do you, do they think they want to hire you to do some kind of like project? And then you're like, here's how things work here. Mm -hmm. First you do this. So how, how familiar are they with the, the engagement that your engagement style? I think usually, so usually they come in, in the two, one of the two mindsets that you just described. Sometimes it's, Look, we really, we think we need an outside expert to come evaluate where we stand because it looks to us like we're not doing everything we can or should be doing. Mm -hmm. So it's clear to me that that's what they're, they're looking for in evaluation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, it, it's a lot more muddied in that, as you described, where they're like, we want to improve our program. And we were thinking we could do, you know, X, Y, Z. And I'll just turn that conversation to, well, how do you know that's the right thing to do? Why do you think that? And maybe they've maybe they've done an evaluation, but that's right. that rarely comes up. Right. It's more of we just we're not happy with where things are. Okay. So you really need to understand deeply where you stand and where you need to go and so I'll spin them towards the the evaluation and roadmap is the place to go. Um it, I would say it's about 50/50 when folks come in. Mm. Okay, cool. What which one do you prefer? I don't know if I have a, I mean, ideally I want someone who has read the product page and has understood it in detail, but that doesn't always happen, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, they may have skimmed it, but they'll want to know more about the process. Yeah, that was diplomatic. Yeah. Yeah. How often does it happen that you do one of these, let's just call it a roadmap and you don't want the follow on work? 
Um, it has definitely happened. Um, one thing that it's happened, it's almost when it's happened, it's almost always happened because we haven't enjoyed the process of working with this client mm-hmm. or we think that our advice is just not, it's being ignored. Um, okay. Yeah. Right. So then I, then I don't want to do the implementation because it's gonna be too painful right? Uh, to work through and implementation work is almost always less profitable than the roadmap to begin with anyway. Yeah. Um, so I, it just, if we enjoy working with them, if we, if they, if they continue to fit like the ideal client we thought they were at the start, well, then we want to do the work, but sometimes right. it's too damn painful right. to do it. Yeah. That's why I stopped consulting. I was like, yeah, just put it. They're just not, they're not taking the advice. It's like, I'm happy to cash the checks, but there's some part of me that just dies inside when they just, I see the website. Mm-hmm. It's still bad. Okay. So so first we talked about positioning, tons of great stuff there. And now this sort of the sales approach is almost like uh, some people call the roadmap. I, I, I don't know if I agree with this, but some people call the roadmapping thing like a paid proposal. It's really not. Mm-hmm. It's, right. It's like a paid scope. It's not really a paid scope. It, it does function that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then was there like it felt like there was another thing with looking back at the things that made a have started to make a big difference and contribute to your success. Um, I think pr- proposals in general, like learning how to write an effective proposal, mm-hmm. um, which I would I would say, you know, for me, it's been a combination of the work you've done and reading and watching and listening to Blair Inns talk yep. about, you know, how to price appropriately, how to deal with the objections in the process and giving the client, giving the prospective client options. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the three option proposal has changed our world. Uh, for sure. <laughs> okay. So, all right. I, my eyes light up to that. Yeah. My ears perk up there. I mean, almost everybody takes uh, option two or option three where, where two or three are the higher, you know, paying sure. options. Sure. Um, we probably don't always scope the third option as like a five X of, you know, option one. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we try to lay out like, what's the most logical thing that they're going to want to do and then guess a little further, mm-hmm. um, that would make sense for them. But uh, the bulk of our client of of new clients take option two, and some will take option three. Yeah, that's perfect. And we would have left that money on the table before because mm-hmm. we didn't propose it. Right. Oh, that's great. Now, do you have people dedicated to, like, say, following the the pricing creativity process, or um, is that do, does everyone do it? Like your blogging, or is it more like more like you you just do it, or even um, uh, Ron Baker talks about having and Ed Kless talk about having like a pricing department, or in your case, probably mm-hmm. a person right. who is responsible for that. How do you handle that? The proposal writing, who who does it? Is it always you? Is it the person who's probably going to implement? How does that work? It's usually me, but we do have some broad discussion as a team around proposals. So, for example, the example I gave you last from the discussions last week with a client that had prospective client that had a breach last year. Mm. We're, you know, we proposed to do a program evaluation and, you know, gave them some options, but we had a team, the delivery side of my team, we had a discussion about that particular proposal because we're going to the new year and we want to set some new price benchmarks. Mm -hmm. So what do we, what do we think we should be proposing for them? And then what should we be charging for that? Mm -hmm. And from that, we, you know, I wrote from there, I wrote the proposal, had the team provide feedback, and then we sent it to the client. 
how high stakes are you at the this this point in time you just closed a really big year like how far do you push it uh, in other words how willing are you how willing are you to lose the deal by being so let me let me actually start that over there i talked to some folks who literally lose sleep about leaving a dollar on the table they're mm-hmm. just like so freaked out that they could have gotten more and it's odd because it's almost impossible to ever find out that you did that unless the client later says we would have paid you double yeah you know it's almost impossible to find this out so it's all almost all imagined uh i suppose one exception to that is if if you are consistently sending out proposals and everyone's picking option three your prices are too low you're leaving money on the table Mm -hmm. but most of yours are option two some of them are option three which indicates that there's probably a little bit of upward mobility well there may be a lot of upward mobility depending on who you're attracting but i'm just trying to like you're you're (laughs) you're at risk in statistics and probabilities where would you put yourself on the scale of like I don't really care if I get the, you know, we don't need this job so that the prices, in other words, putting this high, high upward pressure on your pricing and be like, ah, you know, I want, I'm in the game to hit home runs versus I just want to, I want to be like, I want to hit a lot of doubles and just always be on base and just show up and hit doubles. You know, where between the, that, those two spectrums, where would you place yourself personally? We're probably between the two. And and I, I say that only because we, uh, we've done enough program evaluations since we created that as a as a consistent productized process that we generally know how much time we're going to spend on that mm-hmm. um, with a, within a, within some reason, right? So, so you feel pretty strong about your costs. You're, you're we feel like, pretty good about the cost end of things. Okay. So, and we're gonna we we're gonna push the price a little bit because it's a new year and we're raising prices. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we if that if we win the work, I think unless we've completely underestimated it, we'll feel pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. If we just if we don't get the work because it's for whatever reason they decide not to hire us, that's fine. We've got plenty of other work right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you mentioned you said this year we're raising prices, which actually is it might be an interesting way to to re ask this question or to go deeper into this question. With value based pricing, you never raise your prices, but what you could raise is your profits and. I, I'm just curious, since you're in such a unique position and it's the timing of it, is that really what you, did you really mean that you raised, you're going to raise your prices or did you really mean you're going to try and raise your profit? Like you're going to, it's like, we know what our costs are. Well, it's a dip, it's different. You're right. So we're raising our profit. Okay. You're the right way to put it. I love that answer. And that's, a, that's an important distinction for the listener. So because you don't have set prices because you're talking to each client individually and setting price based on, so there's no concept of raising a price. Everyone's different. I mean, they probably fall into a standard distribution, but they are different. So for example, you could say, um, we are, we are going to go after more of these whale clients. Like we're going to go after bigger clients from now on, because we know that that it's going to increase the value that we can deliver and we can capture more of that as a price. Mm -hmm. So totally, totally semantics but for someone like me that really likes to deconstruct these things i I appreciate the i I appreciate you indulging me so what that and that was the root of my question about like it's another way of saying you're like moving more towards the home run hitter like let's let's a little move a little bit towards some home run pricing like i can't believe we landed that like wow 
and really testing the market to see like how much money are we leaving on the table based on our brand reputation, our content marketing, uh, the trust we have in the marketplace and like the prices we're putting out there. I would agree with that. Cool. All right. That's awesome. Okay. So, so was there anything talked about so many things i don't even know the clock on the wall i think we've been going forever we could probably keep going but was there anything else that you felt like made a really big difference maybe not even just in 2023 but like something that came to fruition last year that contributed to this like almost you know 50 percent increase in revenue well i think two things we we talked a little bit about you know we do some managed services work um where companies are outsourcing their whole resilience program or elements of their resilience program to us. Mm -hmm. I think we've been able to do that in a very profitable way um, because we're basically applying our methodologies of how to do the work to the work. Mm -hmm. And that has allowed companies to, the value proposition on their end is they get this from a vendor mm -hmm. um, where the work is guaranteed. Um, they're not having to manage performance because we're doing that. And they're able to do this less expensive than having an in-house team do the work. Mm. Um, and that because we know how to, because this is the only thing that we do, this has allowed us to, I, I think, develop a newer line of business that we think we'll be able to grow and expand in the future. I was going to ask, like, where do you see it going in the future, right? Like, is what's the future for Bright Path? Is it some sort of almost like SaaS or product or um, or just sort of ongoing managed service, like you said, like, do you think that that is the next big thing for you guys? I, so ironically, some of our competitors have launched a SaaS, a business continuity and crisis management tool, and that's worked really well for them, but they've found themselves pivoting to being a software company. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And I don't, it, there's a lot of other good software in this space. I don't really see us doing that. I think it's more, I think we'll continue to grow the managed service arm of the work that we do that we can really differentiate ourselves there to some of our competitors and grow that grow the business in that direction mm, okay so i've got i know we're going do you have time i have like I do. Two, okay i've got two big questions to close yeah. on it's sort of bad you just mentioned the word guaranteed which i cannot let go by especially in the space that you're in mm -hmm. so what does that look like what is a guaranteed engagement look like from from you yeah so when we're doing managed service work like a business continuity as a service is something that we do for several organizations mm -hmm. the guarantee here isn't that you're not going to have a disruption but the guarantee is that we're going to get you we're going to take your business continuity program through its annual life cycle of creating new plans completing business impact analysis updating plans having business continuity team exercises and whatever else might be within that statement of work that we negotiate with them that you're going to get that done on an annual basis uh, or whatever the you know calendar calls for mm -hmm. in that particular engagement so for example one of our clients uh that had an in-house team prior to outsourcing to us they hadn't completed their business continuity life cycle requirements by you know their policy and regulations for several years and we got that done in the first year uh, for them because we're just applying our methodology and our expertise our experience to that problem and making it happen right okay totally cool totally cool perfect answer to that question mm -hmm. all right so then the other question was much more entrepreneurial which is how much growth is enough for you <laughs> global domination jonathan okay so not universal though <laughs> <laughs> funny ironically we had our, our our annual planning meeting with the whole team this morning 
uh, and we talked about like what do we look like three to ten years from now mm-hmm. and you know we we've got some revenue targets we plan we think that we can achieve over time mm-hmm. not every year is going to be this 40 percent increase by any means um but we we see continuing to grow in some of these areas that you and i have talked about with managed services and other products that we want to launch and have over time does that look like increased headcount or top line like stay headcount top line goes up uh, it'll be both. Um, we'll have to continue to add headcount in order to support the work that we believe that we'll win and have to do over time. Mm-hmm. And the attractiveness of the ongoing managed services, like predictability. Right. Your own resiliency, in a sense. Yeah, it really levels out the peaks and valleys of cash flow. Exactly. Wow. I mean, I feel like we could do another whole episode, but uh, I know I have to let you go. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the show. Of course, thanks for having me and greatly appreciate uh, all the knowledge you shared over the years. I I love to see it working. It's my favorite. So where can folks go to find out more about what you're doing? Maybe get in touch with you, um, follow up questions, refer business and so forth. Our website and all of our social media is brightpath, B-R-Y-G-H-T-P-A-T-H and then .com for the website. You can find me on LinkedIn under Brian Strouser. Uh, and our podcast is Managing Uncertainty, and you'll find it in all the same, all the great places that podcasts are found. Mm, sounds great. Love the title. <laughs> <laughs> Good marketing there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks, that's it for this week. And I hope you join me next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.